ask. For your presence and your spirit to be here this morning with us. We ask for the living presence of the resurrected Jesus to be here. And that we would be able to powerfully sense your living reality in and among us this morning. We need you. I need you. Um, this uh, week uh, is a heavy week for um, some precious members of our church community. Um, Amy Bridgman, who bravely fought cancer for s- several weeks, passed away this past week. Um, and she leaves husband Brian and baby girl Lydia. Um, we had the memorial service yesterday, and uh, it was so good to see so many of our church family there present, uh, encouraging and supporting Brian and the rest of the family. It was powerful. It was powerful. Um, at some point at the end of the service, I'm going to ask Brian to come on up and share a word because he wants to thank you, the church family. There were more people from our church family Amy's bedside in her passing than there were her own family members. And... Uh, Brian really wants to thank you and also ask various ways that we could be praying for, for him and the family. I'll do that towards the end, right before we take communion. You know, every time something like this happens in the life of our church, um, it's, it's, it's heavy on, on all of us. Um, church is not huge, but it's large enough that there are many of you that didn't know Amy. Um, but I was reminded this week that this has been a, a heavy, tough year for many of us, actually. We've lost a lot of loved ones, moms and dads. I personally have also experienced tremendous personal loss. Um, it's just been a really heavy, tough year. And Weeks like this, I struggle all week about what to say. Sometimes I don't want to say anything. And sometimes I just want to be quiet. And if you know me, that's hard for me. But sometimes it's appropriate. And then there are other times when, as a pastor, I have to uh, 
speak to you, the larger church family, about what it means and how we respond when we do face enormous difficulty in our lives. I've already shared with a couple people that uh, if I don't make it um, and finish the sermon today, which I don't know if I will, they're ready to come on up and uh, take me off and pray with me and pray for me. So this morning, in some ways, it is a direct pastoral, if you will, sermon to those who knew Amy well and cared for her to her last days. In some ways, I'm inviting the rest of you that didn't know her to sort of listen in. When we encounter unexpected death or tragedy, as a pastor, 20-some years, regularly I hear the question, why does God allow this to happen? Why does God allow this to happen? You know, normally what I've found is that people respond in one of two ways. The first response to that question for some goes something like this. Don't question God. He's got reasons beyond our limited understanding. You just need to accept it. In some ways, asking hard questions or difficult questions is discouraged. And even worse yet, in some circles, you're told that it's lack of faith to question God. The problem with that is that you can't reconcile that with Scripture. I don't know when the last time you read the book of Psalms is you read the book of Psalms. You can't get too far without realizing that godly, good people question God all the time. When I look in Scripture, it seems to me not only God does not have any problems with his people questioning him, crying out to him, but he invites it. He invites it. So for those of us sitting here saying, why, God? God invites it. And there's a second response, which often goes something like this. I've got no idea what God's up to. I have no idea at all about why these things happen. It makes no sense. And uh, I got to tell you, the problem with that response is that although we don't have the full answer, and to anyone who claims to have the full answer, They're fooling themselves. Although we don't have the full answer, we have an idea, an incredibly powerful idea that we find all over Scripture. And that is this. Do you realize at the heart of Christianity, at the heart of Christianity, stands this truth. And that is that God takes the worst tragedy, the worst evil, the worst form of injustice ever committed, the innocent torture and death of his son, and it is out of that that God brings about redemption. It is out of that that God brings about salvation. It is out of that that God brings about forgiveness and restoration for all of creation. That's... That's not just a peripheral thing. That is foundational to our faith. We look to the cross, as we always do, for what God is up to. So we can't shrink back from asking the hard question, God, why? Because the best way to honor the memories of the ones we've lost is to live confident and productive lives. And I got to tell you, the only way to live confident, productive, joyful lives is to ask that question and face it squarely in the face. 
can't shrink back from it. You have to have the strength to face a world filled with constant devastation and lost. But where do we get that strength? Where do we find that strength? Jesus says in John 16, 33, I've told you these things so that in me you may have peace. If you're taking notes, that word have literally means take possession of or ownership of. And let's be very clear. That's just not let's hope for peace or let's just wish for peace. Jesus is saying you could have peace. Where? Church, where? In me. That's not half peace in church or half peace in Christian activity. That's half peace in me. That's, he's talking about a vital living relationship with him where your reality is immersed in his reality. In me. You could have peace. Why? He tells us, because in this world, you will have trouble. But take heart, I have overcome the world. In this world, Jesus says, you will have trouble. And he's contrasting the world to come with the present world. He's contrasting the kingdom of God that is emerging, that's perfect, that's beautiful to the present reality of our world, world that's broken down, fallen apart, corrupted by sin, in chaos. In this world, you will have trouble. Church, I got to tell you, this is Jesus saying to his his followers, you will have trouble. Trouble is coming. Not just trouble as in you've lost your keys and you can't find it kind of trouble. The kind of trouble that will make you think, I don't even know if there is a God. The kind of trouble that's where confusion reigns and there is not a simple answer. The kind of trouble where it's not, it was hard today, but it gets better tomorrow. The kind of trouble where it threatens to snuff you out and snuff me out. He says that kind of trouble is coming. The Mount Everest kind of trouble He says, I'm going to make you a promise. In this world, that kind of trouble is coming. You're going to have it. He's saying, we who follow Jesus are not exempt from this kind of trouble. We're going to have the same kind of trouble that the rest of the world. But what is his promise? Church, I need your help this morning. What is his promise? His promise is take heart. Why? Because I have overcome the world. I have overcome the world. And there is hope in that. There is hope in that. There is only one place where hope can be found. And it's in Jesus And you're going to need that. And I'm going to need that. Because the promise is big time trouble is coming. But hold on. Don't give up. Don't lose sight. Don't capitulate to despair. Take heart. Why? Because I have overcome the world. That's his promise. How do you know? 
How can you be sure? One of my favorite books in the Bible to go to when I'm enduring enormous child and difficulties, the books of First and Second Peter. Those books were written to Christians who were undergoing enormous persecution and suffering. In First Peter chapter 1, verse 3, this is what Peter says. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope. Everybody say living hope. Living hope. And listen to the following words. Mark it, underline it, highlight it into a living hope. Say the following with me. Through the resurrection of Christ Jesus from the dead. And into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade, kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. Peter says, you and I have been born again into a living hope. Anybody in need of living hope today? He says, you're going to need living hope. And living hope is a power. It's a dynamism that gets you through the trials and troubles in this world. And what is that living hope? Do you see what he says is the living hope? He says it's the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And how is the physical resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead our living hope? How is that our power? How is that what anchors us and gets through? This is what Paul says, and I read this portion, and we shared this at the funeral yesterday, and I want to share it with you. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 20. But Christ has been indeed raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man, each in his own turn, Christ the firstfruits, then when he comes, those who belong to him. He says the resurrection of Jesus is the foretaste or the firstfruits of the final salvation that awaits those who believe in him. And what is the final salvation? It's Revelation 21, a new heavens and a new earth. Down comes new heavens and a new earth into our world. And we need to remember that the reason why Jesus came into this world is because what we desperately long for, a world devoid of cancer, a world devoid of disease, a world devoid of death, of sin, evil, and injustice, a world of shalom, a world of wholeness, a world that we long for, a world without sin, evil, evil, suffering, and death. A world where there is no more pain, there is no more tears. A world that we long for is coming. How do we know? Because Jesus Christ rose from the dead. The resurrection reminds us that God is not preparing us an ethereal, disembodied Heaven that would be consolation for the life we lost. What God is promising us is the restoration of that life that we lost. Do you know what the difference is? 
the difference is consolation says if you've lost someone through cancer, when you get to heaven, consolation just simply says, there, there, there's no more suffering. Now you're okay. That's not what awaits us. What awaits us is God saying, here's the life that you lost returned back to you, and your joy will be that much greater for having lost it in the first place. Do you hear me? That is restoration, and that is what awaits us. This means that your body, your loved ones, your relationships, all that you lost, restored, purified, purified. This world, this body, given back, pure, unfading, imperishable, unspoiled. What awaits those who worship Jesus as Lord is the promise of a restored world, completely free from the blemishes of sin, in which we too will get resurrected bodies and live forever ever in the presence of God, free from sin and death. That is what awaits us. Is that good news? And I tell you what, church, when hope of this future restoration grips our hearts, we get involved now in addressing all the ways in which our world is broken today. The people who are most involved in addressing injustice, evil, suffering, and pain are the very people for whom this future restoration is the most real to. Why? Because we recognize that what we do now matters for all of eternity. And we don't passively wait for God to come back and fix everything. We recognize that we're a vital part of God's plan. Edmund Burke said, all that is necessary for the triumph evil is that good men do nothing. Church, don't let evil men triumph. Don't sit idly by and do nothing. If you read history, you'll find that the Christians who did most for this world were the Christians who thought most of the next. The Christians who did most in addressing and working to restore injustice, evil, and suffering and pain in this world were people for whom the future was most real to. It's C.S. Lewis who also said that it is because Christians have lost sight of the future restoration that we have become so ineffective in this world. We don't talk enough about restoration. We don't. We don't talk enough about restoration. And truth be told, it is because the future coming restoration is not real to us that we spend all our lives paying attention to this world. Is this a living hope or reality in your life, church? See, to the extent that that future is real to you, it will change everything. I'm telling you about how you live in the present. As I said yesterday, why is it so hard to face suffering in this world? Why is it so hard to face death in this world? Why is it so hard to face loss in this world? Loss of reputation, money, and life. Because we followers of Jesus think that this world is the only world we're ever going to have. And that is not true. What awaits us is a world that is restored. That is what awaits us. And it is to the extent that that world is real to us. You could live in this world and face anything. You can be brave. You could take risks. 
And as we honored Amy yesterday, it is when you can believe that that world future restoration awaits you, you could risk, sacrifice, give your life, lay down your life for anything. You will not be afraid. You will not be afraid. Come on, church, how strong would you and I be? Why do you think the early Christians sang when they were being burned at the stake? Because they were more spiritual? No, it's because future hope was the engine of their lives. Do you hear me? Peter goes on, verse 7, These have come so that your faith of greater worth than gold which perishes even though refined by fire may be proved genuine and may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. For you are receiving the goal of your faith, the salvation of your soul. Concerning the salvation, the prophets who spoke of the grace that was to come to you searched intently and with greatest care, trying to find out the time and circumstances to which the Spirit of Christ in them was pointing when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. Peter likens suffering and pain and trouble in a life of a follower of Jesus through fire. He likens it to a fire, a furnace that you put metal through. And do you realize that this literally happened at one time? What are you talking about, Peter? The year is 600 B.C. Israelites have been taken captive to the city of Babylon, the most powerful empire at the time. And King Nebuchadnezzar, the big bad king, has ordered an edict that says everybody... In my kingdom will bow down to these idols that I've set up. Otherwise, you'll be thrown into the fire. And there are three young men. You may have learned about them in Sunday school. Who decide to defy the king's edict. And we find their story in Daniel chapter 3. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to save us from it. And he will rescue us from your hand, O king. But even if he does not, we want you to know, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. Now this passage is absolutely frightening and disturbing to some Christian circles. Because it radically it radically confronts a very simplistic, dangerous view of faith and the will of God. Do you know what I'm talking about? Because when you look at this passage, literally what these young men are saying is God is able and he will. But even if he doesn't. God is able and he will, but even if he doesn't. Now, if they're sure that God is able and willing, why do they say, well, he may not? And if they, on the other hand, think that God may not, how can they be so sure and speak with such confidence that God will? Here's how. Even though they've been given assurance and evidence that God will deliver them, 
These young men are not assuming that they're reading God right or they know for sure what God might be up to. They're literally saying, we worship an untamed God. We worship an untamed God and he is under no obligation to operate according to our wisdom or understanding. Their confidence is in God himself and not in their own agenda of what they want to see God do. Their confidence is in God himself and not in some agenda that they're sure that God is going to promote. And I got to tell you, church, some of us sometimes when we say we must believe that God will bless us and not have any doubts at all. Oftentimes that's more of a belief in our own agenda than it is in God himself. Think of all the greats from Joseph to Jesus. Men and women of great faith who lived tremendous lives, but it was through their suffering and trials that God's salvation came. If our posture is, I know God will answer this prayer. God, you can't not answer this prayer. Then our confidence is not in God's wisdom, but in ours. Their confidence is so anchored in God that they're literally saying God knows what he's doing even if we die. They're saying we believe that God will deliver us. But King, that is not the reason why we defy you. We defy you not because we think that we're going to live. We defy you because our God is God. We defy you because our God is God. And we believe that God will either deliver us from death or God will deliver us through death. But our God is God. And we will not serve your gods, protected from the fire or not. Do you realize that the real miracle here didn't happen in the furnace? The real miracle happened before they ever entered in. The real miracle is that they were ready to face anything in life. The real miracle is that they were ready to face any fiery furnace in life. Are you? The real miracle, church family, for those of you that grew up reading this passage, the real miracle didn't happen in the fire. The real miracle is that God spiritually fireproofed them before they were physically fireproofed so they could face anything. Some of you have plans and goals and agendas for your life. And I got to ask you this morning, Are you trying to fit God into your agenda or has God himself become your ultimate agenda? Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6, one of my favorite, maybe yours, and we so often misread it. And without faith, it is impossible to please God because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that God rewards those who earnestly seek him. Church, family, I have to ask you a question. What is the reward of seeking God? The reward is what? Is God himself. If you do not believe, 
if you do not embrace that this is the essence of faith, if you do not believe that Jesus will work for us if only we are true to him whether he works for us or not. Don't go to Jesus because he's fulfilling, although he is the most fulfilling person in the world. Go to him because he's true. If you seek Jesus, if you seek to meet Jesus just to get your needs met, you will neither meet Jesus nor get your needs met. To follow Jesus is not to come and seek help for our agenda, but to take on a whole new agenda, and that's Jesus himself. Some of you have agendas that you don't want to give up. You've decided that your life is going a certain way. And you've decided that if God is loving and good, he's going to cooperate with your plans. And you're waiting to see if God comes through. And some of us are pretty upset right now that God has not come through. And he is not cooperating with our schedule. We need to come to a place where we can say, God, your agenda, not mine. Your will, not mine. Your time, your money, God, not mine. We need to come to a place where we can say, You're able, you will, but if not. Let me finish Daniel 3, verse 19. What happened to these guys? Some of you already know. The Nebuchadnezzar was furious with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and his attitude toward them changed. He ordered the furnace heated seven times hotter than usual and commanded some of the strongest soldiers in his army to tie up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and throw them into the blazing furnace. So these men wearing their robes, trousers, turbans, and other clothes were bound and thrown into the blazing furnace. The king's command was so urgent and the furnace so hot that the flames of the fire killed the soldiers who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Then the three men firmly tied fell into the blazing furnace. Then King Nebuchadnezzar leaped to his feet in amazement and asked his advisors, weren't there three men that were tied up and threw into the fire? They replied, certainly, O king he said look i see four men walking around in the fire surrounded and unharmed and the fourth looks like the son of the gods who was that other person listen to the words of isaiah but now this is what the lord says he who created you O jacob he who formed you israel fear not For I have redeemed you. I have summoned you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, say the following with me. I will be with you. And when you pass through the rivers, they will not sweep over you. And when you walk through the fire, you will not be burned. The flames will not set you ablaze. For I am the Lord, your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. The promise is not, please listen. The promise is not, if you belong to me, you won't go through the fire. The promise isn't, if you go through the fire. The promise is when, when you are plunged into the fiery furnace, there will be trouble. There will be fiery troubles. There will be hardships in this world. But in the midst of that, what is the promise of our God? I 
will be with you. You will be able to so powerfully sense my loving presence right there with you as if I was walking along with you. And isn't that what we need? Isn't that what we need? Because in times of despair, information will not heal a wounded heart. It's their presence. Especially the presence of someone who has been through what we've been through. Who knows intimately what we're going through being with us. Just talked to one of our church members yesterday who lost her mother through cancer. And she said that her dad told her that he had two things that he will remember forever about going through that cancer. One is in the hospital room not telling his wife how much he loved her. Not telling her and saying more because he was overcome with emotion. But the second thing that he remembers, and this I will take forever with me, he said that the thing that he wanted more than anything in that hospital room was that when people would come and visit, that they wouldn't say anything, that they would just sit with him. That they would just sit with him. No explanation, just sit with him, that he longed that people would just come and be present. And the promise of our God is that you will sense me walking with you. And you won't be consumed. Troubles and trials won't turn you into a hard person, a bitter person. If you sense me walking with you, troubles and trials won't break you. If you sense me walking with you, it will refine you and give you a character and a soul and an unshakable faith. But how do we know for sure? How do we know for sure that our God will be with us. It's the cross. It's the cross. If you sit there and go, how do I know for sure that God will be with me? The cross reminds us how far God was willing to go to make good on his promise that he will be with us. What other religion in the world says that there is a God who took on flesh and bone and embraced suffering in his life and death? Church, are you hearing me? For anybody who says, how do I know he will do that? The cross tells us that there is a God who came to this world and said, this is how far I am willing to go to make good on that promise that I will be with you. He is hanging on the cross. Going through everything that we've ever suffered to someone who is going through unjust persecution. The son of God on the cross going through unjust persecution. To someone here today who's crying out, why God? We see the son of God on the cross crying out, why God? And to someone here who's lost a loved one on the cross, we see God losing his own son. 
They say that if you lose someone who is close to you as a friend, that's devastating. You lose your loved one, a spouse, that's even more devastating. The deeper the love, the more intimate the love, the longer the love, the more devastating the loss. And we see Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who is eternally enjoying relational intimacy with the Father, being cast out from his presence. Jesus doesn't just experience physical torment. He's experiencing utter cosmic infinite loss. He's losing the very source of light and life. To be with us. Whenever you cry out, are you with me? He's hanging on the cross and saying, let me show you how far I went to be with you. Why did he do this? Grace, you come on up. Isaiah 55, 11. You need to hear this. You need to know the source of your living hope. Why does Jesus Christ go through that? He says in verse 11 of Isaiah 53, he will see that is Jesus, the son of God, the result of the suffering of his soul, and he will be satisfied. My righteous servant will justify many, and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great and he will divide the spoils with the strong because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors for he bore the sins of many and made intercession for the transgressors the results of his suffering isaiah says jesus will see and be satisfied what could possibly make his infinite suffering on the cross worth it the answer is to justify many the answer is to justify you to reconcile you to redeem you and me do you know why jesus did this Isaiah's answer is because you and I were his living hope. You and I were living hope. Think about this for a moment as we enter to the season of Advent. What is the one thing that the Son of God in all of heaven did not have? The thing that he didn't have is reconciled, resurrected, forgiven, redeemed you and me. That's the only thing that he had to come to earth, be born as a human baby, suffer and die for. His living hope was resurrected, you and me, in his arms. Do you realize that? Do you realize that? You will never make him your living hope until you and I come to recognize to the question, God, why are you allowing evil and suffering to continue the cross might not 
tell us what the answer is, but it does tell you what the answer isn't. The answer isn't that he doesn't care. The answer isn't that he's indifferent. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, comes and plunges himself not only into the furnace of our pain and suffering, but to infinite degrees beyond we'll ever suffer the furnace of God's wrath and judgment for all evil and sin. Why? Please hear this. Why does he do all that? So that someday he could end evil and suffering without ending us. So that someday he could end all evil, sin, and injustice without ending us. See, I'm like you, church. This year, going through everything that I've gone through, I cried out to God sometime in anger and saying, God, I don't don't want you to be with. Deliver me from. I don't want you to be with. Deliver me from. Don't send them in the first place. And I have to go back again and again and again to the anchor And the anchor is the promise of God is not, I will deliver you from the promises. What? Church, say with me, I will be what? With. As we enter the season of Advent, out of all the names that God could have chosen for his son, Matthew 1 says, and the Savior will be born. Give him God. Give him his name. And his name. His name will be Emmanuel. God with us.
I've ever loved any other person. <laughs> and uh, you were there for her. You were there for me and our daughter. Martin Luther King Jr. said that a person's character isn't based on who they are when things are fine, but when things are hard. So you've shown me your heart, church. You walked with us. You gave us food. You visited Amy in the hospital. You were there when she died. I won't forget that. now that God would bless you ten times over for what you've given us. I pray that this never happens to you. Before we take communion, um, I'd love it if some of you guys that have been a part of Brian's life and have walked and journeyed with him to come up so we can pray together for Brian and his family. Come on up. Come on up. Church, we're going to take communion. Um, if I could ask <clears throat> Tim, Pastor Michael, come on up. Some of you didn't know Brian or Amy, and I just want to encourage you. If at any point during today you felt prompted to reach out to them, either right after the service or some 
point down the line that you would do so. Um, Communion reminds us of the broken body and the shed blood of Jesus. Tim, you can go on the side. I'll be in the middle. We don't say this enough, but communion is a means of grace. And there is, it's not just a symbolic thing, but there is a powerful sense in which God's spirit and his presence ministers to us. to enter the season of Advent remember Emmanuel God with us remember how far he went to make good on that promise the night he was betrayed Jesus took bread he broke it and said this is my body broken for you Whenever you take it, do it in remembrance of me. And he took the cup and said, this cup is the cup of the new covenant. Represents the reality that no longer will people have to come based on sacrifices of animals to enter the throne room of God, but by the sacrifice of the ultimate Lamb of God and his shed blood for us, we could enter the throne room of grace with confidence.